You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Um, Before I get to the scripture reading this morning, I wanted to introduce myself. My name is Lauren Early, and I have the pleasure of serving as one of um, Third Church's 12 governing elders this session. So um, I'll be here after the service. If you'd like to come up, meet me, ask any questions, and I would love to pray for you if you have any prayer needs. Um, Now, um, please turn with me to John 11 for today's scripture reading. Comes from John 11, 17 through 28, 32 through 44. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never not die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the son of God who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved them. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lauren. Let's pray together. 
Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for the Word of God that reveals your great love for us and the person of Jesus. And thank you for your Spirit that is with us who reveals the person of Jesus to us. So we pray now that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds, that we might see him and know him and encounter the risen Lord Jesus today, and that you would draw us to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. I'm Corey. I'm a pastor here at Third Church. Really happy to see you. Um, welcome if you're visiting today. Uh, we have been going uh, through the Gospel of John together in this season of Lent um, leading up to Easter. And we've been calling this series Come and See because this is a phrase that comes up a lot in John. You'll probably notice that by now. Um, and it's the language of invitation that John is, through the writing of his book, he wants everybody who reads or hears his book to know that they are being invited by God to meet and encounter this person, Jesus. Um, something that I was thinking about this week and that you may have noticed as we've been going along is that we're not just being invited to, to come and see Jesus, we're also being invited to come and bring something to Jesus, bring something out of our experience to him. And then each time someone brings something to him, they receive something in return. So just think back um, over the last few weeks. Uh, people brought to Jesus um, their thirst. The woman at the well brought Jesus her thirst. And in return, Jesus gives living water. Um, we bring to Jesus our fears in the boat, and he gives us peace. We bring to Jesus our sickness, and in return, he gives us healing. Uh, we, we bring to Jesus our hungers, and in return, Jesus gives us bread of life. And so in every story that we look at, we're being invited to bring something out of the, the raw reality of the human experience, and in return, Jesus gives us something as a gift. Being human is hard. It's really hard. And if you don't know that yet, just wait a little bit, and you'll know. Today, uh, in this last great miracle of Jesus, the seventh sign, we are being invited to bring Jesus the hardest and heaviest thing of all. We are being invited to bring him our suffering, our sorrow, and the very real experience of death itself. So that's my question for today. I really want to just look at two questions for you, with you. What does Jesus invite us to do with our sorrow and our pain? And then what does he promise to give us in return? What does Jesus invite us to do with our sorrow? And what does he promise to give us in return? Okay, so let's look at that first question. What, what does Jesus invite us to do with our pain? Well, the first thing I think we see in this story is that Jesus invites us to ask our questions with honesty. He invites us to ask our questions with honesty. Um, if you go back, and if you have your Bibles, you might even just keep them open because it's a long story and we didn't read all of it. But if you go back in the beginning, what happens is that Mary and Martha, who know Jesus really well, um, have a brother named Lazarus, and they send Jesus a message. Um, they live in Bethany, which is kind of a suburb of Jerusalem, and they send Jesus a message, and he's a good distance away from them, that Lazarus, the one that you love, your good friend, is dying. Please come help, because they know that Jesus can help. And for some strange reason, Jesus decides to not come. He just stays put. In fact, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't pack his bags. He doesn't tell his disciples. He doesn't get ready. He stays. For two days, he does nothing. And then finally, he decides that he's going to make his trip with the disciples to Bethany. And at that point, it's too late. And so where we pick up the story is that Jesus is arriving. Lazarus is already dead. And Mary and Martha 
are really upset. And they're upset, y'all, not just that their brother has died an untimely death. They're upset because the one that they knew could do something did nothing. They're, they're not just sad. They're, frankly, mad, disappointed. In fact, Mary is so upset and angry, you see in verse 20, she's so disappointed with Jesus that she doesn't even come out and meet him. She's just like pouting in the house, right? Martha does come out and she immediately says to Jesus, and actually Mary says the same thing in verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, let's be clear, this is not a compliment, right? This is a complaint. This is a protest, right? Why didn't you come? Why did you let this happen? Why did you just sit there? And this is a question that all of us face sometimes, right? One of the hardest things about being a pastor is sitting with people in the face of horrible tragedy, sitting with people in the face of the death of a child or cancer or trauma or suicide and hearing that cry that we all cry sometimes, why? Why did this happen? Why did God do nothing? How could he allow this to happen? I wonder if you've asked that before. Some of you, I think, may be asking that question right now. And what is so striking, I think, about the way that Jesus handles their questions is that he gives them the freedom to ask that question honestly and to speak their hearts freely. He freely receives our complaints and our protests. He lets us shake our fists at him. Uh, you know, Richard Dawkins, um, who's one of the most famous defendants of atheism, once said that the worst thing about being an atheist is that there's no one to complain to, right? Um, Dawkins says that, um, that if the universe really is an accident of blind physical forces, then there really is no rhyme or reason to anything. Um, and he writes this in one of his books. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. What he's saying is that you might feel like bad that your suffering is unjust, or you might wonder why something is happening to you, but that's really just nothing more than an evolutionary impulse that has no basis in reality. Uh, in a meaningless universe, there is nothing more natural than violence and suffering. And in the end, he says, there's nothing to protest. There's no one to complain to. There is only pitiless indifference. Thank God that's not true, y'all. Right? The biblical story shows us that, no, this is not, this world, this world that we live in is not the way the world is supposed to be. There is a design. There is a purpose. And that suffering and death are not natural and that it's right and good for us to complain and protest and express our frustration and anger with the way things are. And the Bible is full of what's called lament, anger, sadness, grief, people expressing their sorrow to God. Job says, God has wronged me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I cry for help, there is no answer. Jeremiah says, why is my pain unending and my wound incurable? God, you to me are like a deceptive well, like a brook that fails. Have you ever said that to God? Or Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my cries of anguish? See, y'all, I just want you to know this. And especially if you maybe are dealing with something in your life right now, the Christian response is not to put on a happy face 
and to say, don't worry, be happy, and to say, oh, God must have a plan. No, the Christian response is to say, no, this is not the way that things are supposed to be, and to express, God gives you the permission to express rage and grief and sorrow, and even to wonder why God sometimes appears to just sit there and do nothing. Mary and Martha come to Jesus as they are, with all of their sorrow and sadness and grief, with their real questions. Sometimes I think we feel like that our our darkest, scariest emotions are barriers between us and God that we have to keep from him. But for Mary and Martha, they are doorways to God. They give them an opportunity to access the tenderness of God. They can be, they don't obstacles, occasions for prayer. And so the invitation for you is that the God we know in Jesus does not need polite, tidy, well-manicured, well-articulated prayers. He's a God we can approach just as we are with our mess, with our lament, our complaint. He accepts those just as much as our praise and thanksgiving. He's ready to hear about our hurt as much as he is about our happiness. So that's the first invitation we see really beautifully here in Jesus, to not pray what we think God wants us to hear, but we are free to come as we are, right? To ask our questions with honesty. The second invitation in our pain I think we see here is to hold our confusion with faith. You know, the sisters are not just asking hard questions. They're demanding an answer. Why did you let this happen, Jesus? They want an answer for their pain. And that's natural, I think. When all of us experience something really hard and really painful, uh, we want to know why. We want to be able to make sense of of our suffering. Um, I see, as a pastor, I see a couple different ways people try to give an answer for suffering. One is, um, I see religious people often try to make sense of suffering by trying to explain God's reasons for allowing something to happen. Uh, we saw this last week in John 9 when Elizabeth preached on it, that the disciples saw this blind man and they assumed that he or his parents or somebody must have done something wrong to make him blind, right? That's, I don't know why, but religious people feel like they need some kind of answer to explain why bad things happen in the world. I remember, oh my gosh, I remember um, some of y'all weren't even alive in 9-11, but I remember in 9-11, these inane (laughs) so-called leaders of Christianity were making these public comments about why 9-11 happened. It must have been because of the particular sins and depravity of certain sectors of the American populace. Friends, Jesus clearly says, don't you dare. Don't you dare. The idea that bad things, that God will allow bad things to happen because of the bad behavior of certain people, that's not Christianity, that's karma. That's not Jesus, that's not grace. And so so clearly, that's not a good way to handle this, to try to give an answer to explain why God does things. On the other hand, as a pastor, I also see a lot of people who assume that there must not be any answer when bad things happen, and therefore God is either unloving or absent or simply out to lunch. Right? Ted Turner, um, the famous media mogul, went to my high school. Um, and so I read his autobiography. It wasn't that great. But um, in, in, his, in his autobiography, uh, he writes about the fact that he was a Christian in his early life. Um, but later, when someone that he loved died a very painful and untimely death, despite his many prayers, he decided that God could not be trusted and he rejected God altogether. That is understandable, but it is not logical. Uh, Because I think a lot of people assume that if there were, if God had good reasons for suffering and evil in the world, 
then I would clearly see those reasons. But why? Right? Why should I assume that I, in my own very cognitive limited abilities, should be able to understand and see the logical coherence of the universe? It reveals an enormous faith in your own understanding. Beneath it, you're saying, I will only trust God if he subordinates himself to my intellectual authority and evaluations about what's best for my life. But who wants a God like that, y'all? If, if God were just completely understandable, if it were totally clear to us at all times, everything that God was up to, then frankly, God would not be God. God would just be a projection of our own wants and needs and desires. If you want a God, and I think we all do, if you want a God that is big and good and powerful enough to do something about our suffering, then he also has to be good and big and powerful enough to do things sometimes that you cannot understand. Elizabeth Elliot, um, the, the author, probably suffered more than most of us. Her first husband was killed and eaten by cannibals. Um, and her second husband died of cancer. That's a lot, right? That's a lot. Um, one day she was watching a shepherd treat some sheep for fleas and ticks. Um, one by one, the shepherd was picking up the animal and holding its mouth and nose and turning it upside down and submerging it under this vat of antiseptic. Um, and as the shepherd held them under, the, the animal was squirming and flailing for its life. And as she watched, she found herself hopelessly wishing that she could explain to the sheep what was happening to them, right? And she said that as she did that, she began very much to feel like the animal <laughs> because she began to realize that she also could not figure out any reason for the treatment that she was getting from the shepherd that she had trusted. And as much as she was asking and she was squirming, God was not giving her a hint of explanation and as she sat there and watched, she saw that the shepherd only intended good for his sheep. She began to feel peace. She wrote this, God is God. And since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and service. And I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily infinitely unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. So Jesus comes to Martha in verses 23 and he basically says, I need you to trust me. Yes, your brother is dead, but I am the resurrection and the life. You are in the presence of one who is stronger than death, and I need you to believe this. Do you trust this? Do you trust me? And she does. She doesn't know what Jesus is up to. She doesn't know why he was delayed. She doesn't know why he let his, her brother die, but ultimately she says in verse 27, I believe that you are the Christ, that you are the Son of God, that you are up to something that I can't understand. So brothers and sisters, listen, when we suffer, we ask why, it's natural. But sometimes behind that question is the belief that I know what is best for my life, and if God really loved me, he wouldn't be letting me go through this. But God is far more powerful, far more out of our control than we could ever imagine. At times, he will appear to be checked out. At times, he will not show up. At times he will allow things to happen that you can't understand and you will feel like you're going under. But does that mean he doesn't love you? Of course not. It just means that he is God and you are not. And that he is infinitely wiser and more knowledgeable about your life and he is so powerful and beyond our control that he has reasons for things that you may never understand. As the great black American writer James Baldwin said, 
the Lord never seems to get there when you want him to. But when he arrives, he's always right on time. So Jesus shows us that God can be trusted and that we can hold our confusion in faith. So what does Jesus invite us to do with our pain? These two things, to ask our questions with honesty and to hold our confusion in faith. Maybe there's something in your life where you're being invited to do those two things right now. But what does Jesus want to give us in return? That's the second question. What does Jesus promise to give us in our pain? Well, the first thing I think we see is that Jesus gives us a God uh, who shares our sorrow. Look at verse 33. As Jesus approaches the tomb, um, he sees the sisters and the whole crowd weeping, and it says that he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. And as he walked up to the grave, it says in verse 30 that he just began to weep. And the, the, the Greek word there is very strong. It's not like he had a, a few baby tears. This is like a, a chest-heaving, shoulder-shaking sob. He's sobbing at the tomb. And I remember as a kid thinking, you know, why is he doing that? He knows he's about to raise this guy from the dead and about to turn a funeral into a party. You know, why is he crying? Well, I believe that Jesus is crying is because he is entering into the sorrow of the grieving. He's entering deeply into the lament of Mary and Martha. You know, in Christianity, there is this unprecedented idea that God actually becomes a human being. And not just any human being, he's actually nicknamed the man of sorrows. He's Emmanuel, God with us. God, the God that Jesus gives us is not the God who sort of is detached and above, transcendent, beyond our pain, but he is a God who comes into our human sorrows and makes them his own. Jesus is weeping. He's not just weeping for Mary and Martha. He's, he's joining the weeping of all who have been wrecked by death. He's th I think he's thinking about all the funerals that he can't show up at all the funerals that he can't interrupt, all the people that will be weeping at the grave that he does nothing about, right? I don't, have y'all ever wept at a grave? If you wept at the grave of someone you love, we all will. Sarah may weep at mine, I may weep at hers. We all will. And here, I believe that Jesus takes in all of that weeping all of that sorrow, all the overwhelming pain that death has brought into the world, and he feels it with deep sorrow and rage in his own heart. He is not just weeping for them. Our, all of our experience of death breaks his heart. So when you are in sorrow, I want you to remember this. Jesus bears that sorrow with you. Y'all know that uh, our dear brother, Jimmy Massey, died a very untimely death in January. And the morning after he died, I sat in the kitchen with Elizabeth, his widow, and the family, and we were speechless. I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. No one knew what to say. But Elizabeth, at one point in the silence, just looked up and said, Jesus wept. And that's all we needed to hear. What an amazing God we have in Jesus. You are not alone. There is no pitiless indifference here. Surely he bears our griefs and carries our sorrow. So that's the first thing Jesus gives us, a God who shares our sorrow. But 
Of course, we don't just need a God who weeps with us. Ultimately, we need a God who will do something about the predicament that we're all in. And this is the second thing that he gives us. So look what happens next. Jesus uh, blows his nose, wipes the snot off his face with his sleeve, <laughs> walks up to the, to the gravestone and says, roll it away. Ah, oh, Jesus, it's going to stink. Nope, nope, nope. Roll it away. So they do. And Jesus walks right up. He says a little prayer, he says, not, not for his sake, but for theirs. But he walks right up. No incantations, no religious language, no fanfare. He just walks right up and like he's, like he's a, calling a kid out from under a bed in a game of hide and seek. He just calls out, Lazarus, come on out. He speaks to a dead man. The dead man hears. The dead man answers. The dead man gets up. The dead man walks out. Jesus speaks a word. All it takes is a word, and death releases its grip and shrinks back into the shadows. Y'all, this is the final and almost too good to be true promise in this story that God wants to give us, is that in Jesus, he doesn't just weep with us, he defeats our death. Now, I have preached this story at a lot of funerals, and while it is a wonderful passage for that, it always, I admit, does feel a little bit discordant, because after all, Lazarus's funeral got interrupted by Jesus, right? He got to live again. <laughs> and yet when I'm preaching this at a funeral, right, that hasn't happened yet, right? The, the loved one is still very much dead. And so I think it leaves sometimes us feeling like, what's the promise for those of us who are still alive in the shadow of death? What, what, what does this say to us? Well, the promise is this, friends, while death is still real because of Jesus, it is no longer final. Our death is no longer a forever death. I love what Dale Bruner says. Jesus has made death a conquered, superseded event of minimal duration. A conquered, superseded event of minimal duration. Death is now almost like a little momentary pause between the old and new creations. For those that we love that have died, and I literally mean this, for Jimmy, for Susan, for Billy, for Christy, for John, for those that we love who died in Christ, Jesus's words in verse three are just as true for them as they are for Lazarus. This sickness will not end in death. Death will not be the final word for any of them, for any of us. Jesus will interrupt our deaths and we will live. The promise of Christianity, I really want you to hear me on this. The promise of Christianity is not a heavenly afterlife, not some ethereal existence in the clouds, but it is a restored world in which the dead will be raised alive to live together in the new creation. It is a day when God will restore all broken things and he will wipe away every tear and death will be no more and there will be no mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Everything broken will be healed. And you might ask, how could this be? This is just a story. How could this be? Well, if you read just a little beyond this story in chapter 11, you'll see that immediately after this event, the religious leaders decide it's time to kill Jesus. Verse 53 says this, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And y'all, I know that Jesus knows this. He knows that if he's gonna go this close to Jerusalem where the religious leaders are, he knows that he is about to force the hands of his enemies. He knows that if I bring Lazarus out, I'm gonna bury myself. 
He knows that the only way for interrupt to interrupt Lazarus's funeral is to instigate his own. That the only way he's gonna call this guy up from the grave is if Jesus puts himself in his own. And that's exactly what happens, literally. This is the beginning of the end. At this point in the book of John, everything rapidly speeds towards the final day of Jesus's execution in just a short time. And we're gonna see this in the next two weeks. Jesus will have switched places with Lazarus. He will be the one in the grave. He will be wrapped in grave clothes. He will go down to the depths of death and hell for us, and he will bust out through the other side and raise to life. And so that's really the secret to this story and how it can be true for us. The only way that death can be broken and the world made whole is if Jesus takes our place and shares our suffering and goes down into the place of judgment and death. And through his death, we are saved. And through his resurrection, we are raised to life. So does that mean that all of our questions are answered? No, it does not. Does it mean that our grief and sorrow and anguish are any any less painful? No. And does it mean we can just paper over our anger and questions and fears? No. Here's what it means. It just means hope. That however painful the journey, um, we know the end of the story. Jesus has revealed it to us in the middle. Just like when you skip to the end of a thrilling novel to read the last few pages, just to make sure the hero triumphs in the end. I know you do that, I do. Knowing the end, the ultimate end, that God is bringing a day when there is no weeping or sorrow or death that brings stores of hope for everyday life. So what have we talked about today? We've asked these two questions. First, what does Jesus invite us to do with our pain? He invites us to ask our questions with honesty and to hold our confusion with faith. And what does Jesus promise to give us in return? He gives us a God who shares our sorrow and ultimately a God who defeats our death. And so here's what I want to do in close, closing. I want you to just think for a moment about your life. In verse 34, um, Jesus asks somebody, hey, where have you laid him? Where have you laid him? Where's the spot of sorrow? Where's the grave? And they reply, come and see. Did you catch that? Come and see. Jesus' original invitation to us becomes an invitation we can give to him to enter into our pain. And so I just want you to maybe close your eyes for a moment and just imagine Jesus asking you, where's the grave? Where's the dark hole in your life right now? Where is the place of sorrow? And you can just say to Jesus, come and see. You can bring him there. You can bring him to the pit. You can bring him to the grave. You can bring him to the place of suffering, the wound that is not yet healed. You can bring him there. And there with Jesus, you can speak your questions with honesty. You can trust his purposes and faith. You can see him weeping with you. And you can know that hope is coming. Thank you, loving God, that all of this is really true. Amen.